Welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty. This week we are going to do something a little bit different than we typically do. There's been a lot of chaos going on in the world around us, to say the least, right now. There's a lot of uncertainty in, a many, in many, many different areas. And so I just want to take a pause from my normal discussion, and I want to present some biblical thoughts And I'm going to present some thoughts I've entitled, Calm in the Midst of the Storm. It's a study that I encourage you to open up your Bible and follow along with. We're going to start in Matthew, the 8th chapter. And we're going to present a series of scenes in the Gospel of Matthew that are all interconnected with one another that I hope will put things in perspective. I was thinking about all that's going on right now, and I think it's important to take a breath sometimes and to realize that God is the one in control of everything. Uh, There's only so much that we can do, and at some point you have to realize that there's something more to life than just you, and take a deep breath and appreciate what God has blessed you with. And so that's kind of what we want to do in this study today. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23. There the Bible says, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, so that men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? There's several layers to this story. This is a very familiar story, a miracle that's worked by the Lord in calming the sea. But there's several layers to it, and I want to kind of take those apart layer by layer. First of all, you have to understand that this miracle scene is part of a trilogy that's presented within Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is famous for putting trilogies together. There's uh, trilogies of parables at multiple locations within his writing, uh, just Just to put it shortly, he has an affinity for trilogies, and this is one such trilogy. Here in this parable in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 through 27, we have the miracle of calming the sea. In the following verses, verse 28 through verse 34, you have Jesus healing the demoniac. And then in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, you have Jesus forgiving the paralytic after he is, or before he's healed him. Within this trilogy, Jesus demonstrates his authority over creation over demons and forgiveness. Now, you might look at that and you might say, well, the first is discussing Jesus' authority over the earthly realm, the second, his authority over the demonic realm, and his third, his authority over the heavenly realm. And while that's true, I think it misses a little bit of what's going on. I I think within these three miracles, you have different aspects of Jesus' divinity that is in focus. It's not just authority in general, but his divinity in particular. 
his power as God to cast out demons, his power as God to forgive sins. So we have to ask the question when we come to the first scene, the calming of the store, how is this a God-focused miracle, and what exactly is in focus as his divinity is displayed? Could it be that the calming of the sea has something to do with Jesus' power over evil as well? That takes us to our second layer that is enlightened by a studying of the Psalms. And before we go to the book of Psalms, I want to just kind of lay a little bit of background here. Within the Gospels, whenever Jesus goes into the wilderness or down to the sea, you quite frequently, if not always, have a scene of testing that's under consideration. Not necessarily Jesus being testing, but somebody is being tested in the sea, in the scene. So you have to keep that concept in mind. Uh, another thing to keep in mind about the sea is the sea and is the center of chaos. It's where uh, evil a lot of times comes from, but chaos in general. Uh, the devil in particular, I think about a scene in Revelation chapter 13 when the, the dragon is standing on the seashore and he's calling up the sea beast that's going to wreak havoc with him. So the, the scene itself of the sea is one of chaos and unknown and uh, disorganization. Okay, with that in mind, the 65th Psalm in verses 5 through 7 reads thus, By awesome deeds in righteousness you will answer us, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas, who establish the mountains by his strength, being clothed with power, you who still the noises of the sea, the noises of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. So here, God's ability to silence crowds is described as his ability to calm the seas, or to calm the waves of the sea that are shouting out against him. Again, in Psalm 89, verse 5, the Bible reads, And the heavens I will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be beheld in reverence by all those around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, our Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. Here the psalmist is describing God's mighty power over nations in terms of God being able to still the waves of the sea that rise against him. So it's using sea imagery to depict a rebellion of mankind, that God has the power to silence and overpower. He has the ability to control and silence that wickedness. Again, in the 93rd Psalm, the Bible reads, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. 
God's ability to still the seas that rage against him demonstrates his power as creator God over his creation, over chaos. You cannot have chaos reigning when God is present. He is in control. Now, take that imagery from these three psalms that are depicting God's might displayed and the ability to storm the to calm the waves and the waves association with the concept of wickedness and rebellion and keep that in mind as a background as we approach this scene in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus is stealing uh, calming the storm Jesus is not merely controlling nature here in Matthew 8 this is Jesus calming the sea that threatens him. Another way to put it is, this is not Jesus' day to die. Now the disciples in the boat, they're very worried and scared for their life. They think they're going to drown while Jesus is asleep. He's not worried because this is not the day that he dies. He will die one day and it will have great uh, meaning and implications for the world. He's not going to die out in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. He's not concerned. He is the one in control of his destiny and of his mission. Notice the reaction that's taking place. In chapter 8, verse 26 again, the Bible says, But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? And I want to pause there and underline that concept. They are fearful and they have little faith. O you of little faith. Remember that phrase because we're going to come back to it in just a minute. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? I want you to realize there's a transfer of fear that takes place in this scene. With little faith, they have great fear of impending death. Yet after Jesus calms the sea, their faith is increased, and with greater faith, they have greater fear. The passage says literally that they marveled greatly. Second of all, the passage says that Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. Rebuke is language in reference to something that's in rebellion. The waves and the wind are rebelling. They are, they are fighting against him, and he rebukes them. He silences them, and the people, they, they think to themselves, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? In other words, the winds and the waves are made subject to his will, according to his word. He has the power of God. And this is a frightful scene when they begin to recognize more fully who Christ is in this moment. There's another layer to this scene. I want to ask this question. Where in the Bible have we seen a messenger of God asleep in a boat while people are in panic fearing for their lives? The messenger is at the center of the storm. God's power is demonstrated. And even greater fear falls upon the people who witness the scene once the sea is calmed. Well, that's the story of Jonah. And there's points of similarity, obviously, between the scene of Jonah, even down to verbiage that's used, and the scene of Jesus calming the storm, while there's also points of contrast. We'll talk about those points of contrast first. Uh, Jesus was about his father's mission, while Jonah was in a state of rebellion and was fleeing from the mission of the Heavenly Father. In the story of Jonah, God's the one that stirred up the sea, whereas in the story of Jesus, it appears more that the devil is the one who has stirred up the sea. The main point of comparison, though, within the scene, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Jonah scene later, but the main point of comparison that you need to get is that 
the way Matthew is describing the disciples and their reaction both to the storm and to Jesus is how the pagans are described in the Jonah story. When the, the Lord's saying you have little faith, he is comparing them to pagans. That's quite a shocking thought, a quite a shocking scene that men that have been traveling with Jesus for so long don't understand God. And they're going to have to come to grips with God and who he is and what he's capable if they're ever going to fully be Jesus' disciples. There's a message that comes with this miracle. And whenever you see a miracle in the Bible, you always have to look for the message because miracles are performed in order to confirm a message. That's why we don't believe that miracles continue today. We believe that God's word is fully com- con- revealed and completed for mankind. That's the point of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and also of Jude verse 3. So what's the message that comes with the miracle? Well, let's, let's put the trilogy of miracles that this is one of, one part of that trilogy. Let's put it in perspective. As Jesus calms the sea, the response is, fear not. Jesus is in, in control of the chaos and the wickedness. As Jesus heals the demoniac in chapter 8, verse 28 through 34, the message is, fear not. Jesus is binding the army of Satan. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, where Jesus heals and forgives the paralytic, the message is, fear not, Jesus has the power over sin. He can forgive in advance because victory is assured. He is going to be the one who gains the victory, and as such, he can grant forgiveness as God. Here in our scene of Jesus calming the sea, the message is, and don't miss it, Jesus is God, and as God, he is in total control of his destiny and his mission. He has come to do the will of God and to glorify God, to be the embodiment of God before his people. The disciples realize that in a frightening sort of way. The second scene that I want to link with Matthew chapter 8 is found over in Matthew chapter 14 verses 22 through 33. I'm not going to read all of those verses. I'd encourage you to pick up your Bible and read those. But I want to give you the general picture of what's going on within this scene. The scene is very parallel to Matthew 8. Both scenes feature the sea, the wind, and the waves. Both scenes have elements of fear. Both scenes demonstrate the divine nature of Jesus. And both scenes are concerned with a lack of faith amongst the disciples. As the scene begins, Jesus commands his disciples to enter in the boat and cross over the Sea of Galilee, which is about eight miles. On this occasion, Jesus doesn't go with him. Instead, he goes up on the mountaintop. The mountaintop is where Jesus goes to be in the presence of God. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration. At the mount, he is praying, he is in the presence of God, while the disciples are in the boat crossing the sea, which we've already demonstrated is the testing ground. It's the proving ground. So Jesus is with God while the men are being tested. They're being tested this time alone in a setting very similar to the one that they first endured in the presence of Jesus himself. You can't help but notice the similarities. They're in this boat and the wind picks up, the waves begin to crash, and they're rowing, they're fighting, and they're getting nowhere. Then in the dark there comes a figure that is walking on the water. They're quite perplexed by that, and they they determine that this must be a ghost until the ghost begins speaking to them, and the ghost says, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. There's that command again. Fear not, it is I. 
Peter responds on this occasion in faith. In Matthew 8, he, along with the rest, were terrified that they were going to drown in the boat, but now Peter has faith, and he's wanting to step out of the boat, into the water, into the waves, and begin walking to the master. He asks if he can have permission to do that, and the Lord bids him to come, and he begins walking on the water. This is quite amazing. Peter's faith has progressed, but has not progressed far enough. For as he is walking, he begins to lose focus on Jesus. He looks at the waves around him. He begins to doubt, and as a result, he begins to sink down into the water. Thankfully, the Lord is there to grab him up and to take him back into the boat. And Jesus' words are quite striking. There's that phrase again, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, the problem is still a faith problem. This is a scene of deja vu in some ways and showing that faith has not yet progressed where it should be. Once Jesus steps back into the boat with Peter, the wind and the waves cease. There is calm once again. This is the exact same effect as when he rebuked it the first time. But notice the reaction of the men is different. Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, the Bible says, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're questioning it. They have a hint of it, but they're not fully grasping and understanding everything, though they are terrified. Here in Matthew 14, verse 33, though the scene is different, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is reminiscent of the sailors who bowed down and worshipped the God of Jonah after Jonah is cast into the sea and the sea is calmed. They realized they're in the presence of God and God is the one in control in this moment. So are the disciples. Truly you are the Son of God. This is the first time the disciples declare the divinity of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. They'll do it again in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. At least Peter will when he declares that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. The demons will declare that and others will declare it as well. This is a monumental moment for the disciples. Now to our third scene, our third storm. At noon, from noon to three... On the day that Jesus died, the earth turned black. The sun did not give out its light, and there was a darkness that could be felt that came over the land. This is reminiscent of the Exodus, whenever God in the final plague before the Passover caused a deep darkness to come upon the earth for three and a half days. This darkness puts an eerie feel surrounding the death of Jesus on the cross. To this eeriness, Matthew adds some details that the other gospel writers do not record. Matthew records in Matthew chapter 27, in verse 54, that there was an earthquake. Now what's interesting about this, a couple of things. First of all, in connection with the earthquake, rocks are split open, the veil of the temple is torn, and bodies come up out of the graves. It would appear that these bodies came up out of the graves at the moment Jesus died, and they stayed around the tombs. They didn't go into the city until after Jesus had resurrected and presented himself to the disciples. However, this, this term earthquake that's used here is the same word in Matthew chapter 8, verse 24, that is rendered tempest. When Jesus calms the sea, there is a great tempest, a great earthquake. It's a tempest that's under consideration. There is a storm brewing in Matthew 8. There is a storm brewing here in Matthew 27 
as Jesus dies. Thirdly, as the tempest rages, Jesus dies. He goes down into Sheol, the Bible will tell us, the state of the dead to be resurrected on the third day. And I say he goes down into Sheol because that's what Peter said that David said would happen and actually did happen of the Christ in Acts chapter 2. I'm reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may, no, not, may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul in Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, when he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Sheol. That's the state of the dead. And this is being used by Peter saying that David prophetically predicted in the Psalms that Jesus would go to the state of the dead, but he would not be abandoned there. He would not be left there. He would be resurrected. Now, why is this significant and why am I bringing this up? Well, because in Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, notice what the Bible says. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. As Jonah is seeking down into the waters of the sea and drowning, he is being sucked down into Sheol. To what? To resurrect in three days. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus told them, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah went down into the sea, and came back up. So Jesus went down into the sea and came back up to calm the storm of life. As this is taking place, as Jesus is dying in the midst of the storm and going down into Sheol, the Bible says, Matthew 27, verse 54, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. There's two phrases there you need to pay close attention to. They feared greatly. That's the same phrase that was used to describe the disciples' state when they realized who Jesus was when he calmed the storm in Matthew chapter 8. They feared greatly, and they cried out, Truly, this was the Son of God. That's the same statement the disciples made of Jesus in Matthew chapter 14 when they realized, after calming the storm again, He is the Son of God. There's no doubt about it. The Gentile recognized in that moment, a pagan, what others could not see. Get the point. Jesus died so that he could calm the raging sea of wickedness, sin, and death. Jesus' death was not a picture of God losing control. No, it's a scene of Jesus going down in the sea when God determined it was time to bring peace, calm, and triumph into an otherwise hopeless world. Praise be to God for that victory and for that calm that he has brought to us. I want to share with you one more scene. In Matthew 28, 
Jesus has resurrected and some women come to the tomb. There they find an angel who tells them not to be afraid, but to go and tell the disciples that Jesus is risen. The ladies take off and they're headed to tell the disciples. And as they go along the way, Jesus himself meets with them and he gives them a message to tell the disciples. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples when these women arrive on the scene and they speak these words and ask yourself, what would go through your mind hearing these words? What was the message that the women were told to give the disciples? Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Be not afraid. That's the same words Jesus gave them in the midst of a storm and chaos when they had a lack of faith. The disciples are meeting behind closed doors. They are discouraged. They're distraught. They're scattered. They have lost hope. They've lost faith. And into that scene, Jesus comes to tell them, Have faith, do not be afraid, for I have risen. When they recognize the risen Lord Jesus and they understand fully the power he has over the grave of death, there's a calm and peace that comes upon them that will go with them throughout the rest of their lives, transforming how they take the gospel into the world and triumph the cause of Christ in a world of wickedness and chaos. Here's the takeaway point that I hope will benefit you this week and the chaos that surrounds us, the application, if you will. Regardless of how fierce the storm, put your trust in God, for he will never leave you nor forsake you, and he can calm the storms. I'm not saying that Jesus promises to calm every storm in your life, but I am saying this. Jesus has the power over death and the grave. What do you have to fear? Jesus said on occasion, Fear not him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can throw both body and soul into hell. Fear God. What an awesome, loving, gracious God we have. There are many things that trouble us. There are many things that make us weary. And on another occasion in Matthew, Jesus would say, Oh, you of little faith. And he was speaking to people who were wondering about the food and about their clothes. Today we're talking about having fear in times of sickness. Oh, you of little faith. Have faith in God that he will provide the necessities in life. He will take care of you. And no matter what happens in this lifetime, Jesus has the power over the death and the grave. He has calmed the raging sea of Satan. God bless. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you'll take these words that you'll meditate upon them and use them in your daily walk. May they bring us comfort in difficult times. God bless. Have a great week. Oh, the praise is yours alone. You're worthy, worthy of all. Ever